Good morning. Good morning and welcome again to Lake Forest Davidson. My name is Gray, one of the pastors on staff here, and it is great to have you with us here on the first day of, first Sunday of 2020. Uh, whether you're here every week or you're here for the first time, uh, we're glad you've joined us, and we hope this can be a place where you're, uh, you're supported, you're encouraged, and where you're challenged to grow. So here to kick off 2020, we're starting a new sermon series during which we'll be looking at the life of King David. King David is a major figure in biblical history. Uh, in places, he's described as a man after God's own heart. Uh, and yet, at times, we clearly see he is an imperfect man. He, he experiences some very high highs and some very low lows. So as we, as we move through this series, a, a big part of it uh, is getting to know David in his story, is exploring this question of what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Because we know he was an imperfect man, so what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? And how can the answer to that question encourage and challenge us? And so to fully understand who David is and the unique role that he plays in God's story, uh, we first have to understand a bit about what was going on in the area in the time of David. Uh, so that's where we'll start today, a bit of a state of the union of what's going on when David came to the scene. But before we do, please join me in prayer. Lord, we're thankful here in 2020 uh, on a new Sunday for, for a new beginning and the hope that can often come in newness and a new calendar year. Um, and Lord, we, we hope and we pray that this is a year that you work in us, that you change us, and that that, that newness uh, for the year is a newness in us that we know only, only you can bring about. So today we, we ask that you open our minds, open our hearts uh, to be changed in whatever way you'd have for us today, to be encouraged where, where we need it, to be challenged where we need it, um, and ultimately brought close to you. So we, we thank you again for this time. Amen. All right, so I grew up playing Little League Baseball. And I don't know if this is just a phenomenon in the hometown I grew up in, which is Beaufort, South Carolina, but, but growing up playing baseball, there's this trend of a lot of coaches getting thrown out of games, getting ejected from games. I bet I saw it as a player like five or six times. And most of these were dads of players, uh, dads of kids on the team, and they'd scream at the umpire, and then they'd get tossed. And then they'd have to go out to the parking lot and, and kind of sit in the bed of their truck uh, until the game ended because they had to drive their son home, who was on the team. <laughs> And looking back, man, I look back and I wonder, what would, what would go through your mind as you're sitting there in the parking lot in the bed of your pickup truck watching the game going on that you just got tossed out of, reflecting on the fact you just got thrown out of a Little League baseball game, and that, that the, the kids could hold it together, but you couldn't. And, and I stand by my position that this is a, a bizarre place to find yourself in. But the more I thought about it, I, th I think I can understand how you would get there. So go with me on this. So, so, you know, let's say it was a few months back, and li little Dad Jr. comes up, slaps your knee, and says, Dad, I want to play ball this year. And you think, oh, this is great. Dad played ball. Kid's going to play ball. This is fantastic. And then you hear, they need coaches. So you're like, okay. Maybe this, maybe this would be a great chance to spend some time with my son, give back to the community a little bit. And who knows? You know, maybe we'll win the whole thing. That's the original intent, you know. Quality time with your son. Give back to the community. That's, you're like, that's why I'm going to do this thing. But then the season starts, and you get a few games in, and, and you start to lose some games. As a matter of fact, you've lost every game. And there's this other team. Let's call them the red team. The red team, first of all, they got all the good players. 
And then they hired some hotshot pitching coach that none of the other teams got to use. Only they got to use. And of course, their pitching is great. And then they got a cake schedule. Easiest schedule in the league. And then they, they also, the league allowed them to move a game because their best players were on a field trip and no one else got to do that. And of course, they're undefeated. The injustice of it all is just palpable. So then your boys, it's the Saturday time for your boys to go play this team. And the umpire, this snot-nosed little kid, he makes a few questionable calls. And of course, they all go towards the other team. They get all the breaks. Here they are again, getting all the breaks again. If only somebody would stand up for these kids. And that's how you find yourself sitting in the bed of your pickup truck in the baseball field parking lot after you've just been tossed out of a Little League baseball game. And you're wondering, again, you're wondering how you got there. How did you go from this intent of getting time with your son to coach, giving to the community, going from there to like screaming at a 17-year-old umpire and embarrassing your kids, screaming about balls and strikes, which you have conflated with the injustice of the whole world. And believe it or not, this isn't all too different from the situation we find ourselves in when we get to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. So way back in Genesis, God told a man named Abraham, he said, Abraham, here's the plan. You and your descendants, the Israelites, you're going to be a blessing to all the people of the world. And the earth, the people of the world will see me, they will see God through the way that you live your life, the way that you enact justice, the way that you treat the outsider. They will see that you are different, and through that, they will be able to see the goodness of God. And the book of Isaiah says the Israelites are, will be God's witnesses to his goodness and mercy. So this is the original intent, that the small group of people would be a, a city on a hill, like a lighthouse, showing people the glory and goodness of God. This was the original plan. Then you flip forward a few, uh, a number of books in the Bible, and, and you see that the plan has gone off the rails a little bit. God's people have drifted from that original plan. They are, as you could say, in the bed of their pickup truck in the parking lot. They've strayed very, very far from God's command to be a witness. They've gone down the wrong path. And many of them are wondering, what happened? How did we get here? In 1 Samuel 2, uh, the first example of it, we, we see that a prominent Jewish priest, this guy named Eli, had two sons who were kind of scumbags. And they would steal from God's offering at the tent of meeting, and they'd sleep with the women outside of the tent of meeting. And the tent of meeting was a place where God would meet his people. So that's why it's called the tent of meeting. And there was no temple yet, and it was a tent because the Israelites were moving around a good bit at this time, so they could take it up and put it down. So the, the tent of meeting. You can think of it, though, as like an early temple. And so these women were assumed to have, have been prostitutes, and they're hanging around this tent of meeting, this early temple. And the fact that there were prostitutes around and associated with the tent of meeting tells you that something has gone very wrong. So many of the other nations in the area had religious rites that involved intercourse with prostitutes. And many of these prostitutes were associated with and sometimes housed by the temple itself. And there's evidence of this happening years earlier with the Greeks, but the Babylonians, the Phoenicians, Hittites, many of, many of the surrounding nations to the Israelites are, are practicing this type of stuff. And here we see that it has come into God's camp. It's come around God's temple. So we, we see here that, that God's people, they're not being different than the, na the nations around them. They're not showing all the nations around them who God is. They're not changing the nations around them. They're being changed by the nations around them. 
They have mirrored and adopted the ways of the people around them rather than being different, including ways that, that go against God's law. They've gone away from the call. And this continues a handful of chapters later in 1 Samuel 8. So the elders of the tribe of Israel, they, they come to this prophet Samuel and they essentially say, hey, this, this has been good, well, it's, it's been okay, uh, but, but we got together and we decided we want to try something new. We want to get a king. Not like God has been our king, but like a human king, a person. And up to this point in history, Israel has not had a human king. And then Samuel warns them, Samuel's his prophet, he warns them, he says, listen guys, this is how the whole king thing is going to work out for you. He says, this king is going to take your sons, and he's going to make them fight in his wars. He's going to take your daughters, he's going to make them be servants in his palace. He'll take your best land, he'll take a share of your food, he's going to dominate you, he's going to rule harshly over you. But then the people re refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. See this in 1 Samuel 8, I think there's a slide. No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So there are two things that have happened here. Um, the first one is people are looking for, for help in the wrong place. So there's a line in here that should jump out at you. That we also may be like all the nations. The original call, like we just talked about, was to be a blessing to the nations, and they were going to do that by being different. And here they, they want to be just like the nations around them. They've lost the story. Second thing that's happened is they, they've forgotten, they forget. And so they say that they want a king to go out before us and fight our battles. And granted, they are coming off the heels of losing a pretty big battle, and, but they want a king who's there on the battlefield, who can issue orders, who has... A, a, who's a, a real person who can lead the crowd and make speeches. At the core, what they really want is someone to protect them, someone to provide for them, and preferably someone that they can see. And they say they want someone to go out before them and fight their battles. They've forgotten, because we read throughout Scripture that indeed, time and time again, in the midst of their danger, God has indeed gone out before them. They have forgotten how God went before them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, leading them away from the Egyptians. They've forgotten how God provided manna in the desert. They've forgotten how God used Gideon to lead the Israelites to victory in battle. They've forgotten. And so we see that it's not having, having a king isn't the issue. The issue is that they've forgotten that God has been and is their king. That God has been and is their protector. That God has been and is their provider. They forgot. They lost the story. They lost the desire to be different. They lost the desire to put God on display. They lost the desire to be a light to the world. And so they want a king. And so what does the Lord say? 1 Samuel 8.22, we read, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. So God says, Okay. And he gives a green light for them to anoint a king. And the king they end up with is a man named Saul. And Saul, in Saul, the Israelites got the man they wanted. It seems God anoints the man Saul almost to send a message. It's, it's way too coincidental. Uh, we, we read that, that Saul was incredibly handsome, very tall. He looked the part. He looked like the guy you would make a king. 
And when we meet Saul, he's in the middle of chasing his father's lost donkeys. And again, not a coincidence. This is a message. Throughout the Bible, God is compared to, to a shepherd with his sheep. Sheep are his people. God is, God is the shepherd to his people, like shepherd to sheep. Yet we see here that his people are not acting like sheep. They're acting like donkeys, or another word for donkeys. Israel needs a shepherd, but Saul is not a shepherd. Saul is a donkey herder. Saul is also from the tribe of Benjamin. At the end of the book of Judges, right before 1 Samuel, we read that the tribe of Benjamin committed a, a horrible atrocity, uh, one of the worst stories in the Bible, and it, it underlined how far they had drifted from God's plan, how far they drifted from God's calling. They got to the point where they're not just missing the story, they are working against the story. They are cutting against the story. You could say they're the anti-story. And so Saul becomes king, the donkey herder from the tribe of Benjamin, and things start off pretty well for him. They, they notch a, a military victory or two, but then things start to go downhill. Saul disobeys God. He lies to Samuel. He starts to get paranoid, and things start to spiral out of control until ultimately it becomes clear that Israel needs a new king. So again, God has allowed this man Saul, a donkey herder from a disgraced tribe, to become king. I think at least partly to wake up his people who have fallen asleep at the wheel. They fall asleep at the wheel and they have veered way off course. In 1 Samuel 16, we read that God has prepared a new king for Israel. And it seems that the prospect of a new king is difficult news for Samuel. So the Lord said to Samuel, this is 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel's torn up. He's, he's uh, mourning Saul's demise. And, I, and I've, I've wondered why. I don't know if it's because he felt bad that he kind of played a part in Saul's rise to the throne. I don't know if it's because he knew Saul on a level and it was sadness for a friend. I don't know if he was worried about what the next king might be like. I'm not sure, but, but it, it points out something, I think, in, in us as humans where sometimes we still mourn the loss of things that we know aren't right. But we know that God, that God will bring a shepherd. Verse 2 we read, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And here it's underlined again. We clearly see how far Saul has gone off the rails. He will kill Samuel for, for following the will of God. So in Saul's eyes, we see that, that Saul's story has become the most important story. Keeping, Saul keeping his position has become the most impo important story. It's become more important than God's story. But Samuel goes anyways. And when they arrived, we read in verse 6, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So Samuel arrives and sees this guy Eliab. Who is Eliab? It's Jesse's oldest son, the oldest son of this family. And Samuel looks at him, handsome guy. I'm sure he was pretty tall. Jesse also looks at him and says, wow, that's the guy. Look at him. He looks like the guy. And Samuel here makes the same mistake they made with Saul. He assumes that the man who looked the part was God's man for the part. But the Lord said to Samuel, this is verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. 
People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, it doesn't mean all you got to do is be ugly and short. The, the, the point of the matter is it, it's not a matter of appearance at all. It's a matter of the heart. Is the heart right? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God told Samuel that Eliab is not the guy. And so Jesse's sons, then Jesse brings the rest, seven more of his sons or six more of his sons to parade one by one in front of Samuel. Um, and the Lord continues to say, nope, not this guy. Nope, not that one. Nope, not the guy. And so they all go by and Samuel's like, well, I came here to anoint the king and it seems no one's here. He asked Jesse, are, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. And so they send for the youngest, and this youngest's name is David. And many think David was not inside with his brothers because he was so young. Jesse, his dad, would have assumed too young to even be considered as a, a candidate for king. But David was outside tending the sheep. And don't just skim over that. He is outside tending the sheep. We met Saul as he was off chasing donkeys. And here we meet David, a shepherd to his sheep. David is brought in, and then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. From that day, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So as we begin to, as we begin to wrap up, two, uh, two things we can learn about God from all of this, although this is what we talked about. Uh, the point one is that God sees the heart. Our state motto in North Carolina is, is the Latin phrase, esse quam videri. It means to be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. Saul seemed right, but he was revealed to be lacking in the heart. David, the youngest brother, didn't outwardly seem like the future king, but is revealed to have the shepherd's heart. We see this in the life of Moses as well, who who was tending his father-in-law's sheep herd when he encountered the burning bush and was thrust back into God's story. Moses, the man with a checkered past, who spoke poorly, who didn't appear as, as the world would say a leader should, but God saw the heart. We can tell how people look, but God can tell what they are. In a lot of ways, this, this is comforting news. It's comforting because God sees the heart. He doesn't need the pretending. He doesn't need the charade. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. So we don't have to do things to make ourselves sound right to be heard by God. We don't have to do things to make ourselves appear right to be heard by God. Because again, God sees the heart. But at the same time, this is also convicting. It's convicting because many of us benefit, we kind of make our hay by appearing right or sounding right. I grew up in the South. I love the South. But this is especially true in Southern churches where you learn at an early age what, what empty words you can say that will get you applause and approval. And then you learn also what you can say that will quickly get you on the prayer list. God sees the heart. Are we more concerned with how we look, how we seem? Or who we are. Second point, and this is connected to that first one. 
is that throughout Scripture, God makes unlikely choices. He uses unlikely people, and he uses unlikely methods. At the beginning of the sermon, we talked about Abraham, who would go on to be the father of many nations. Abraham was an old man when this all started, well past the age one can normally have children. An unlikely choice. We've already talked about David as an unlikely choice over his eldest brother, Eliab. We mentioned Moses as an unlikely choice, given his background. Of all the nations on earth, God chose not the powerful Egyptians with resources and wealth, but he chose their slaves, the Israelites. The disciples Jesus chose, they were not valedictorians from their seminaries, but they were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. An unlikely choice. The list could go on, but you get the idea. I'm convinced part of why God chooses the unlikely, why he often chooses the weak, is that so we remember, so we don't forget. So we remember whose strength it is on, is, it is on display. So we know that it was God's strength that set the Israelites free. So we know that it was God's wisdom that put David on the throne. So we know that it was God's work that took a band of misfit apostles and made a church that spread over the entire world. Throughout Scripture, God often chooses the one at the bottom, the irrelevant, the irrelevant one, the forgotten one, the one that is ignored by society. The weak rather than the strong. Jesus told us that the first will be last and the last will be first. And when we look at the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus is, is an unlikely one. He was born, the, you know, the king of the world, born not in a palace, but as a poor baby in a stable with no place to stay. And this, in this we see that God is humble. God's people wanted, wanted their Messiah to be a great leader who would come and bring the military might and political power. Yet God came as a carpenter, a relatively peaceful man who was rejected by the world and killed as a criminal. Again, an unlikely choice. In this, we see that God is not a callous God of wrath, but a suffering servant. God saw a world that had gone astray, that, that had bent in on itself towards self-interest, and he did not abandon it, he did not destroy it, but he entered into it. It's the incarnation. God coming down to be a man on earth. This is perhaps the most unlikely of choices. But in this, we see that God loves the world and the people he created. Matthew 20 Jesus tells us that just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So as we close, the, the question I circle to is, is, how does this go beyond a history lesson about King David? How does it go beyond a theology lesson about God? How, how does it change how we walk out that door? Well, the, the mission at its core is, is the same as it was in the beginning with Abraham, is to be, to be a blessing to all the nations so that all of the earth will see God through us. To live in such a way that it's apparent something is different. And if that feels like a lot of pressure, if you feel like you're not a good enough person to, for people to look at you and see God, then the good news is that you're 100% right. You don't have to be. You couldn't be if you wanted to. I mentioned earlier, back in, in 1 Samuel, that the people would meet and hear from God at a special place, at the tent of meeting. They'd hear what God wanted them to do, and then they'd go out and do their best to do it. 
do his best to follow his commands. Well, we as Christians, we have the spirit of Christ living in us. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it is through that spirit in us, not our own goodness, that the world is able to see God through us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7 says it well. It says, for God, who way back in Genesis 1 said, let light shine out of darkness, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are sell, we're the jars of clay, the fragile and cracked vessels which house this treasure of the Spirit of God. And it's, it's through those cracks that the light of Christ shines through. Just like, just like with, with Moses and David, it's through our weakness that we reveal the power, the strength that belongs to God, not to us. It's in, it's in our imperfections, in our flaws, in all of our cracks, that we are invited to be a part of God's story. So what's your role in God's story? The answer's a, a little different for all of us, but what we did see is, is, is that David was thrust into action when he was shepherding sheep while his brothers were inside auditioning for kingship. So where can you be a shepherd? Where can you be a blessing to the people around you? Because there is a place for every person in this room. There is a person for every person in this room. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's your employees at work. Maybe it's your coworkers at work. Maybe it's your boss at work. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the food pantry at the Ada Jenkins Center. Maybe it's you become a missionary somewhere and the people meet, you meet there. Or maybe it's the waiter at lunch today. But what's certain is this, God is going to put people in your path. And all of us, every single one of us, are invited to be a part of the story. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you can use even broken, flawed, and cracked vessels like us uh, in your story. Because we, we see that that is precisely what you use. Not the proud but the humble, not the perfect, but the imperfect. And we know it's through your strength uh, that all things, that all parts of your story are coming true. So we thank you again for the, the opportunity to be a part of your story, and we pray for the courage and, uh, and your spirit to guide us in that. Uh, we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.